One of the tenets of a great conversation to me is lively debate. Being able to go back and forth and understand different perspectives is something I really appreciate. And that's why I'm so excited for you to hear today's episode of Higher Learning with Blake Janover, founder and chairman at Janover Incorporated. Blake is so well-read and well-thought on so many different subjects. We talk about everything from generative AI to commercial real estate to his experience going to the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ to his favorite books. This podcast covers everything. I know you're going to love hearing from Blake just as much as I enjoyed talking to him. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we are joined by Blake Janover. Blake is the CEO and chairman at Janover, his own company he founded. How you doing, Blake? I'm all right. I'm grateful to be here. Big fan of yours. Thank you for, uh, for inviting me on. I am so excited. We've had so many good conversations, obviously, offline. I'm so excited to bring it online. You have such an interesting story, so much going on in your life. I want to start here. I want to talk about the company Janover. And, and obviously, I love hearing about the founder journey. I love meeting other entrepreneurs. Tell us a little bit about your company. And I'd like to know a little bit about how you got involved and, and started the company in the first place. Okay. Well, uh, so our, our core product is a uh, platform for commercial mortgages. Uh, the way I got started is I was raising uh, $45 million of debt and equity for a transaction that I was working on. And um, it was really, really painful, unnecessarily so, and took 10 times longer than I thought it would. And uh, it was like scratching my own itch. I know it's very cliche, but uh, I thought, hey, maybe there's a better way. And uh, a little bit of fiddling led to uh, an end-to-end platform uh, for financing multifamily and commercial real estate. So at this point, we've got 12, 10%, uh, something like this, of the FDIC-insured banks in America on our platform, giving us first-party data, uh, 35% of the top 100 credit unions, and we have billions of dollars uh, a year in, in commercial loan applications. Um, and I put my name on the door. You know, I'd like to say it's not ego. I, I or lack of creativity, it's social accountability. I'm, you know, I'm all in. So, uh, and, and, and the name says it. I love that framing. Yeah. Cause you know, sometimes you'll see that people have a company and they name it after themselves. And listen, when we were naming MSH and listen, a lot of people know this story, um, make shit happen. That was something that we were very delivery focused, very execution focused back in 2011. We told clients make success happen because we didn't want to be, have a potty mouth at the time, but when I was thinking about the name of the company, there was a time where we were thinking about using our own names and kind of combining that together. But one of my thoughts at the time was, I want to grow this into be a really big company and I want everybody to feel ownership over it. And if I give it a name that doesn't necessarily have a tie to me, then maybe that's more possible. But I love that because yeah, you are all in. This is, you, you got some social equity tied to it with your name being tied to it. And we're going to get into it, but yeah, it's on the NASDAQ now. That's on the stock exchange. So that's like, that's amazing. And I got to be honest, I'm a little bit jealous when I see, and I see the ticker up there. <laughs> that's your name and your family's name up there. I love that. Now, listen, commercial real estate, is that something that, I mean, that doesn't strike me as the thing you like kind of fall into. Is this something that's been in your family? Was that something that you got interested in early on? Or how did you get into commercial real estate at all that you were having to get that level of debt financing? So I was always a nerd. So I started off as a kind of a hacker um late 90s um like a self-taught software engineer when software was just starting to be a thing and i was and i was actually at the time that i got involved in real estate i was uh, maybe 19 18 something around this this time and i was writing uh trading algos for a small family office and uh, a friend of mine who is a digital marketing geek uh was like hey i've got all these mortgage leads and 
Um, I was like, what's a mortgage? What's a lead? And, you know, we, we started collaborating together and it, it, it was my segue into the industry where I went to work for a company and then start a company. Um, so, you know, going back 20 uh, some odd years, I, I got into residential and commercial real estate finance through that very, you know, geeky uh, um, segue. And uh, I built a meaningful company, um, hired all my friends, uh, made real money, made real impact. I was super innovative, thought I was the smartest guy in the room, but, you know, I was an arrogant 20 year old riding a wave. And when the GFC happened, uh, I got wiped out, but that was, that was my entry point. So it's always kind of been there. So I've always been at this very, this like intersection of techie, geeky stuff and commercial real estate finance. It's a, it's a weird place to be, but it serves me uh, and our customers and employees and shareholders quite well. Okay. I don't want to drag you through the mud, but I want to go back to the GFC in the 2008, 2009. Obviously things are not going well in the real estate world. You've got this company. I, I got to imagine the impact. How was that? I and mean, walk us through that as, the, as a founder of, of a company, CEO of a company that's going through that type of crisis. How did you handle it? How did you manage it? How bad did it get? Poorly. So the, I, I think now uh, this is, um, I'm highly biased. My, and my memories are, are, you know, <laughs> some of it may be self-generated, but I, I think I handled it very badly uh, in a lot of ways. The, the one way I handled it well uh, was I was always high integrity. So the friends that worked for me, I helped them go get jobs. I gave them a heads up. I told them, you know, what I think is going on. So I, I've always cared very, very much to a point of counterproductivity, perhaps, uh, for the people that work for me. Now, how did I handle it? I thought I was I was 20-something. I thought I was the smartest guy in the world. So I took all my money, put it back in the company, levered up, uh, lost everything, uh, mm -hmm. took, took, my, uh, took the last couple bucks I had, bought like crazy out-of-the-money call options in some of the mortgage companies that, uh, that were publicly traded that ended up failing. Um, <laughs> I, I went I went all in um, and not not because uh, not from a place of humility, but from a place of arrogance. And I got wiped out. Uh, ultimately, I had to file bankruptcy um, as like a 20 something year old kid because I personally guaranteed everything. Um, now, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me in retrospect. That's how all these things are. Uh, I, I ended up still running a commercial practice and ultimately ended up in the Dominican Republic, running one of the bigger BPOs in the Americas and had all kinds of ups, downs and adventures uh, in between. Um, but that was a painful time. And let me tell you, look, I was a lender then. I had a balance sheet and, and what have you. Uh, so when interest rates flew up last year uh, and, you know, markets turned upside down, uh, Number one, I had some, you know, like a like a feeling in my stomach. I was like, I've been here before, but you know, we're here without a balance sheet, as far as like a, a balance sheet risk, well capitalized. And I'd I'd always I I've, I've always had taste in my mouth. So anytime somebody's like interest rates are going down, they're going up or whatever, I'm like, no idea what's going to happen from a macro perspective. Uh, let's just be prepared for for the worst and. And, and get after uh, the best possible results. That was a very long answer, uh, sir. Exactly, you, you, you I might... love the story. I appreciate how vulnerable you are, right? And and, and self-aware and self-deprecating you can be. But here's the reality <laughs> of the situation, because when we look at successful entrepreneurs, and you and I are, are, are blessed enough to know a few of them, 
you always look at the end product and you're like, man, this person's got it all. They got the family, they got the wealth, they got the power, they got all these things. And the reality is, is that anybody who's had any level of success has had tons of failure, sometimes dramatic failure, right? Along the way, right? They say that failure is just success in process or, you know, smooth uh, seas never made for a skilled sailor. And it's 100% the truth. A lot of times the, the successful entrepreneur is the culmination of four or five, six, seven fuck ups to get to that point. And what you learn from that, that makes you better and hardens you. And one of the things I say all the time about being an entrepreneur, because I don't know it's for everybody, but what I would tell you is this, it's not about having the heart or the mind necessarily. It's about the stomach because they're going to go through situations like you did where you personally levered up to the point of bankruptcy and you had to rebuild it. And by the way, the success you've had today is very much tied to that failure back then. And I would tell you that, you know, in anything I've done professionally in my career, I can look back at specific inflection points of when I hit rock bottom myself, both personally and professionally, and had to lift myself off the mat and get you there. And that I think is what ultimately makes for a successful entrepreneur. If there's anything I learned from last year, it's, you know, people always used to say, just don't quit, just don't quit. It's actually the truth. I thought it was cliche at the time, but the reality is all the successful entrepreneurs have just stayed in the fight. As long as you stay in the fight, you're probably going to be successful long-term. What do you think about that? I think it's really well said. I, I, I would say that if I had to choose like a couple characteristics, it would be uh, relentlessness. So just stay in the fight to the point of like ridiculousness, but also curiosity, whether it's self-reflection or, or the, the desire to learn. So as long, because, you know, what you don't want to do is what I did when I was, you know, 20 nothing years old, I stayed in the fight, um, but I wasn't looking for uh, what am I doing wrong? What can I do better? What, ha what, did, what happened to people that went through this before? Uh, because everything is super cyclical in this world. Like no, there's nothing new, it's variations of things that happened before. So how did other people handle this in the past? What happened in the, this is the GFC. What happened in the savings and loan crisis? What happened uh, in, in the seventies under Volcker? Like how, so there, there was a lot of opportunity to be self-reflective. There was a lot of opportunity uh, to be curious. And I wasn't, I was just cocky. So I think the combination of relentless pursuit of, um, of improvement, both in the company and inside, is uh, will ultimately, you know, lead to whatever outcome it is that you're after. I love it. So I know you said cyclical, and so I want to ask you about commercial real estate right now, right? And 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 it's 2024. Um, I almost said 2023. I'm moved into a new year. It's 2024, and I look back over the last four or five years, and of course. You know, the proliferation of the internet has been happening way longer than that. Well, that was supposed to take out a lot of brick and mortar from a retail perspective. That doesn't necessarily happen. Um, but certainly with COVID, right, office space, um, occup occupation is much less than it was back before 2019. Uh, our company personally is on a hybrid schedule, but we're still, you know, leveraging offices. But that's not for everybody. It's not every company. So I'm interested, where are we right now? And then what's your kind of point of view, your informed point of view, of what, what it looks like going forward? So I think people, it, it's a good question, and I, I don't want to bore, bore the viewers or listeners with what I can do here, which is putz around on the subject for a couple hours. So I'll say that I think it's really important to, um, to segment these things. Commercial real estate is very broad, uh, is a broad word. So there's office, and then for office, there's class A, class B, class C, suburban, infill, urban. Um, there's multifamily, industrial, hospitality, self-storage. There's all these different asset classes. Um, 
the internet was supposed to break retail. It didn't, right? At, at the end of the day, actually, most of the big real retailers haven't figured out how to make uh, online shopping work, right? Uh, Walmart took a shot at it with Jet.com. That did not work out. Uh, online shopping is very much a loss leader. Uh, most of the shopping still happens in retail. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated thing. I don't know what's going to happen with Office or how it's going to happen, but I know generally in life, things are never as good or bad as we think they are. Uh, and anybody that's got a strong opinion about where things are going to be on a macro perspective in a three to five year window shouldn't be taken too seriously, which I think is like 90% of the people that are on CNBC. So, mm-hmm. so the one thing I could, the, the one thing I could say is um, it's def- there's, there's a wall of maturities and um, something that you hear uh, there's a wall of maturities every year because all multifamily and commercial loans or most of them are balloon notes. So every year uh, the, there, there's these maturities happening uh, broadly uh, my, I've got a, let me see if I'm pointing at him. I've got Buffett right there. Buffett would tell you interest rates are financial gravity. Uh, so if you have a financial asset that's valued based off of, off of its, uh, off of the income it produces um, and, and maybe benchmarked against a 10 year treasury from, a, uh, from a, a risk and return perspective. So, so as interest rates go up, the value of those things are going to go down. Um, most of the loans outstanding today are good loans. Uh, most of these loans were made five or 10 years ago. Most of these properties significantly benefited from inflation. Um, and most of these banks are going to be just fine. I think you'll find, like in most cases, there's pockets of material risk. Urban office beat class B and class C in New York and San Francisco. There, there, there's risk there. Who's the risk to? It's, is it to like uh, uh, like one pension fund? It's going to sell it to another pension fund, and then this pension fund is going to buy another one cheaper. I think everything's going to kind of be okay there. Is there some CMBS lenders that have extra exposure? Are there some regional banks that made some high leverage, uh, no interest rate cap loans to somebody that had a big balance sheet, but not a lot of liquidity? And like, you know, was the balance sheet? So there's stuff out there, uh, but net net, everything's going to be okay. You know, Jackie, you know what I love about this podcast is that we just talk about such a myriad of topics and we never dumb it down. And it's just an incredible answer that is so informative. I learned a lot. I know our listeners are learning a lot. Listen, that I'm gonna I'm gonna no, double down. I want to get into even more dense topics. Let's talk generative AI. Your platform leverages <laughs> yeah. generative AI. Okay. Yeah. Very hot topic right now. I'm very interested how. You think generative AI is going to start to impact our day-to-day lives professionally and personally, specifically in commercial real estate, though, too. I'm sure you have a point of view there. Okay, so, you know, my it's it's, it's a good question. And another one that, that we could spend quite some time on. Um, how is it going to affect our day-to-day lives? It's hard to say. I think that, I think first, it's it's one of these things where Look, you're talking to somebody that never really bought Bitcoins or Ethereum or jumped into blockchain. So I'm not like one of these people that just jumps on to, to trends. Um, I've watched generative AI do things that are like shocking in the capacity that uh, it's like more talented than me and many employees in many ways. And it's at its earliest stages. And I've watched the pace of change over the last 12 months. And it's it's shocking. My my initial instinct was that um, generative AI could be massively deflationary, right? It could destroy jobs, a lot of jobs. But somebody bought up, uh, somebody mentioned the other day that it could be um, 
it actually could increase uh, GDP by making more productive humans uh, and, and uh, improving G GDP per capita, which would essentially be inflationary. Um, so, so I don't, I don't know. Here's what I do know, or, or what I feel confident about. I think that it's um, when I think about like the transformative moments in my in my life from a technical perspective. It was uh, or, 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 like technical things that happened that were transformative. Uh, I think there was like the mobile phone. Um, I think there's networks, uh, uh, you know, Ethernet and the internet, um, and 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 the, the migration to Wi-Fi. Uh, I think generative AI seems to me uh, that it certainly has the capacity to be as or more significantly transformative than any of these other things. I would compare it uh, to the internet. To to like, I I would imagine that I could be I could be totally wrong, right? Because we, because we may not be able to get past a certain point um, in, in in what an LLM can do or or or, or how much, I don't know, capacity a transformer could have. Uh, but I, I, I think today, if I had to guess, I would say it's like an AOL 14.4K uh, dial-up modem moment. Um, and shit's about to get super interesting. Yeah, let me, uh, let me compound on it. Because I, so yeah. I, I am somebody that I, I think people would refer to me as an optimist when it comes to technology. I see the good in things. There's no doubt that there's downsides and bad effects. We look at the internet. There's definitely a lot of downside. Anybody who's got a teenage girl will tell you there's some downsides that come with the internet. But my God, there's so much more that it's brought to our world, right? You're going to deal with downsides with anything. And so as I look at the last 20 years and kind of innovation, of course, the internet changed everything. And when I look at how it impacted consumers, you know, and, and, and the average person, um, access to information, access to tools and products and services we never otherwise would have had. I remember back when I grew up, and you can you 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 would know this too, you know, back in like the 80s and 90s, like I'd be having a debate with some friends, be like, you know, what was the name of the person who was on Facts of Life, you know, the blonde one? And you'd be like, I don't know. I guess I guess we'll just never know. And you went back on with life. And now that would never happen. You would literally pick up your phone and be like, oh, yeah, it's this person and that's what it is. And you move on. Okay. So it, for the internet changed everything from that perspective. I also look at, and you said Wi-Fi, the cloud really changed everything, right? Going away from on-premise hardware, the expense that comes with that, the commitment that comes with that, it allows us to access things faster, cheaper than we ever be able to spin up companies faster than we've ever been able to. It's whether consumers realize it or not, it's completely impacted the way that we work and we live in, in many, many ways, right? And now we have AI and generative AI. And what I think the initial impact is going to be for the average everyday person is, you know, we all go into Google and type something up, right? Hey, I want to find out about this. This is going to make it much more focused, much more targeted. You're going to get way better information way faster. And a lot of the things where you have to go to multiple sites or do validations, AI and LLMs are going to eliminate that. And that's just a very initial way. But I am of the belief that it is going to be inflationary from this perspective, okay? We can talk about how it's going to replace 30% of jobs. And my strong belief is people who do not adapt to AI and learn it are going to lose jobs. That's just going to happen, okay? So you have to adapt, much like you had to adapt to the internet and the way that worked. But for the people who do that, 
it's going to make them 30% more productive. It's going to take a lot of the tasks that we spend so much time doing, right, that aren't really worth our time. And we can be more in the thought leadership space, in the, you know, strategic space, in the space where we're doing the things that really drive the purpose of our work, really drive the, the point and emphasis of the work that we're doing. So my take is much like, you know, when the car was invented, it's like, oh my God, what's going to happen to all the people who drive buggies? Well, changed, right? But it didn't lose jobs. You know, when, the, when, the, when the printing press and the manufacturing press came out, what's going to happen? Well, change jobs. Same thing here. There's definitely going to be things that are going to change. Professionally, the way we work, the way we get things done, the speed of way we get things done is going to change. But ultimately, I think it's going to add to our GDP. I think it's going to add to our workforce. And for people that adapt and don't act like dinosaurs about it, I think it's going to be a, a massively um, game-changing in a very, very positive way. Now, I lean, I lean optimist. There's some downsides too, but that's my kind of overall view. I, I, so I could jam on this for a while. So like, yes, and that's assuming that we don't cross into AGI uh, and, and we don't know what happens there. And, I, and, and, and the, just the one thing I'll, ch I'll challenge, because I agree with all of that, is that we're thinking from a base of biases that we have on everything that we've seen from a history of innovation. Nobody that was... Uh, logging in to Alta Vista or whatever, you know, 20 some odd years ago, would think that AWS, um, the cloud, Stripe, same day delivery, uh, Wikipedia, like these things were like, like not, not even, not, not even conceivable, uh, uh, satellites in space shooting internet down to us. Um, so I, I guess what I would say is that we are, um, absolutely limited in in what we could predict uh, because this is a seismic uh, change. This is a order of magnitude change. Um, so like just crazy ideas. I like to buy books, but uh, I generative AI isn't too far from me saying, hey, write me a book about um, you know, X, Y, Z in business, write me a history of Israel, uh, write me, uh, uh, write me a book about Donald Trump, uh, but I want it biased towards one side or the other, make the case towards one side or the other, whatever. Uh, I, I just, I, I think we're up against, you, you mentioned strategy. I think I'm smart and creative and, and interesting, but I have conversations with, with the AI, like sitting there and it, and it's able to come up with things that are uh, very high EQ and high IQ. Um, and, and it's, it's the, the, the thing is, and I, I'm, I'm net optimist, uh, but the thing is we're in such early days such early days, whatever we're putzing around with, write this legal contract for me, uh, you know, do, do this thing, review, review this, review that. What do you think about this? Give me some name ideas. Do Super cool. But um, we're, 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 we're just, we're just scratching the surface. I, I, I have no idea where this is going to go, but it's the industrial revolution and uh, it's going to be good for us in, unless it ends us. Yeah, well, two, well, two things, uh, and then we'll, we'll move on to the next subject because I, I do enjoy okay. So two things. One is what I think is happening over the next 10 to 20 years because we always overestimate 
the rapid rate of change in the amount of years versus decades, right? And so at the end of the day, what I want is I want a lawyer, okay? That's not AGI, okay? I want a lawyer though that has access to AI to look at all the different case files and all the different things in the world to look at, parse through and make the best defense for me because they leveraged AI to get all the information that they never would have had access to otherwise. Same thing with a doctor. I don't want the AI making the diagnosis of me. We all know that there's Why? flaws. And there's, well, because there's biases Why? in algorithms. There's, there's lack there's of- There's biases in people. There's biases of in course. people. I would- Okay. Sorry, I, I sorry, sorry, sorry. I, just, I, I want just... human intervention at this point. Like, I, I don't. <laughs> because listen, it's only as good as the information is being fed. And so you heard about those lawyers who got disbarred because they took cases on case studies that AI gave them, ChatGPT gave them that didn't actually exist. Now, you're assuming a world where we get to perfection on that. I don't think that's going to happen. And what I think is going to happen is that LLMs are going to become subscription-based or proprietary. And so you're not going to be able to pull from all the different places in the world, right? And so what I want is human intervention with the, with the amplitude of AI helping them make those decisions. And I actually think that's what's going to happen for the next 10 or 20 years. Now, going to AGI and the idea of robots and things taking over, we invented the nuclear bomb back in 1930s, 40s, right? We all seen Oppenheimer. We know how it goes. We haven't blown ourselves up to bits yet, even though, and what happens? Why? Because over time, the technology advances and we put controls in place and the greater good, I think, of humanity ends up winning most of the time outside of a bad actor who could end everybody. I think the same thing will happen with AI. I think we'll put regulations and compliance in place as it innovates and we'll get to a point where I don't think it's going to be the end of the world. Now, will there be downsides? Will there be situations and deaths and things? Probably. But we accept the downsides that come with the massive upside with any type of innovation. So we don't know. I'm not pretending like I know. But I, you said earlier, let's look back in the 70s and let's look. I'm looking at technology innovation leading up to this point and what's happened and how we've dealt with it and how we've evolved and assume the same thing is going to happen here. Oh, the same thing is going to happen here. And if I'm wrong, well, then we all lose, right? Well, change the subject. I just want to put, I just want to put, I, I just want to drop two bookends on my end. I disagree with most of this. So, <laughs> what so, you're about to say or what I just said? With what you just said. So, oh, so okay, good. So, number one, uh, humans are like terrible at data. They make a ton of errors. They have a ton of biases. Uh, if we have a well enough trained LLM, and, and I'm talking about that LLM and a doctor, uh, I'm not too far away from preferring the LLM. So. That's that's one thing, but I think like generally humans want to have a human involved. But I, 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 I got to say, say one thing to you on that: who's putting the data in that the LLMs are reading off of? Humans. So I think we're there's so there I think error there. So I think we're getting so I think we're getting to a point um, where we're where we're passing that with with, with uh, so I think we're getting to a point that we're passing that. So the other thing with AGI. Like, so the thing that would happen uh, possibly with AGI is that it becomes self-prompting or uh, it develops its own incentives. That's not something a nuclear bomb can do. So I think, uh, I feel pretty confident that if, if LLMs are the stepping stone to AGI, then we are uh, beyond the ability to control or regulate it. That's a big if. I don't know if LLMs are the stepping stone uh, to AGI, right? There, there may be some massive 
a leap that has to happen in order to get to that AGI point. If LLMs are the path to AGI, there's no amount of regulation or anything that, that we can implement at this point to align it to our interests or control it with the amount of open source data that's already out there. If you build it with controls in mind and future ethics in mind, and we put a responsibility on, yeah, the thing is Jurassic Park and Terminator. It's already movies, out these there. happening movies, but they're not, they they're, haven't happened in our reality. We have innovations and things that we've done that haven't gotten completely out of control. It's I believe that open humanity, sourced. humanity governs these things much better than we give credit for. I really do. That's what history said. That's my take. All right. You know what? I'd love <laughs> to bet you on it. But unfortunately, if you win, the world's over. So I can't really collect. No, 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 no. I don't think that AGI means the ends of the world. I just think that if LMs lead to AGI, we have there's we have like controls and thing we have. So we're either going to end up with somebody that's benevolent or somebody that's a um, and we just hope that we have like a benevolent AI uh, that, 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 that treats us well. But LLMs might not be correlated with AGI. So, Jackie, I think I should start a commercial real estate and technology podcast. This is going great. I love this. All right. We're probably going to have to edit some of this because I don't know that we're going to have a three-hour podcast, but let's keep going. Why not? Why not? I'll, I will you know, listen to you there. talk for three, yeah, three let, hours. Let, let, let's, let's let the people decide. Lex Friedman. Democracy. Lex, Lex does battery? it all the time. We're running out of battery. <laughs> No, we're good. Uh, all right. I got to ask you this, and then we're going to move into hiring. I promise, people. This is a hiring podcast. We're getting to it. Um, you had an incredible experience about a month ago where your company went public, but you actually went and rang the bell and did the whole show and dance. So what I want is, I want, I want, you told me this when we went to dinner the other day. I want a little bit behind the curtain on what it's like when you are on one of these show tours where your company's going public and you're ringing the bell and you're doing all that. It was crazy. So I had, so the, the, the head of NAC Capital Markets texted me like on Wednesday and he was like, hey, could you make it up here on Friday to ring the closing bell? And I was like, so and I told employees, advisors, board members and, every, and like whoever could make it made it. We all flew out, but there's like the huge list. Like we need to know who's going to come. How are people going to show up on stage? We need all these images, all these things. It was the NASDAQ has two functions they're they're uh uh you know they're the marketplace for uh you know publicly traded nasdaq companies but they have the most unbelievable professional production capabilities i've ever experienced in my life we showed up at the nasdaq in times square they get i don't know what that that thing i don't is. either i don't know why it pops up i didn't hit anything but i'm giving you a thumbs okay. up I love it. keep going i'll take it so so we show so we show up at, there in times square uh, they have, uh, you know, the the drinks and the the Janover stuff all over the place and our logos. And they gave us the whole, uh, you know, the cylinder thing. Uh, there's a name for it on, on Times Square for like an, an hour, two hours. We go in, there's a huge production, very high energy. Uh, we're watching on all the screens as they're, uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> there's that, 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 that cylinder right there. Yeah, so they, but they, they did, they, uh, there's a name for it. And I, I, mean, I feel like such a dummy for not knowing, it. but they, we're, we're, we're all on stage and, um, and we're watching CNBC and Fox and, and, and Bloomberg and see, we're all up there, we're cheering and we're screaming and there's a countdown and they blow the confetti in your face and there's so much adrenaline. And, and, and then what they, and I, you know, I ring the bell, sign it, and then they take us outside to Times Square. And they play it all back on times, like in Times Square, the, the, the speech, the video, 
pictures of everybody that came up on stage. So everybody's got like a picture of themselves and they, they like rope off part of Times Square so we could watch it. It was, and it was especially magical for me because um, look, I bled for this thing. My name's on the door. I had my father and my wife next to me. I think, I think they might've had uh, an even more, uh, you know, touching moment than I. And it was sharing all of this with everybody, with employees that worked inside a closet. Like we grinded it out and it was, uh, and for us, it's just, it's, it's, it's just, you know, the first inning, this isn't an exit for me. I didn't take like chips off the table in the IPO uh, for better or worse, you know, I'm in um, and we're just getting started. But this was a very, it was it Jay Black and the Americans who did this magic moment. It was a magic moment. So. Love it. I love it. I appreciate you giving us that insight. I, I mean, it gives me tingles just hearing about it. Obviously, a you'll do it for that. I hope one day but I'm up there, buddy. I'll make sure I get my name on the cylinder and then I'll text you what the name of it is. Just so next time you're on a podcast, you can make sure you get it right. You could just invite me. You can invite me. You're allowed to invite Come, me. You're, you're, you're there. You, mom, dad, and Blake. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Blake, we got, we got to talk a little bit about hiring. Otherwise, we're going to get in trouble with our sponsors. So um, we're going to start here. Okay. I want to know, you've hired a lot of people for your company in your day. I'd like to understand, do you have a core hiring philosophy? Yeah, so it's changed over time. I think um, having a so, so I've I've always believed in having an authentic conversation. This is about me. This is about you. Do I have, am I talking to somebody that's self reflective? Um, and you know, I look back over time, and you look at you know the Jack Welches of the world, the best hirers perhaps, and even like the best of the best have. 50% hit rates. And I, you know, I've had, I, I think you guys have better, but I think, I, I, I really think you do. But like generally, I think if you're really, really good, you're getting 50%. Um, I think I've done much better than that over time, um, but it depends. I don't know what's going on. I have here. zero idea but why it, there's fireworks going off right now, but I love it. These <laughs> are amazing, okay? The AI so knows. weird. Yeah, that is great. I have no idea why that happened. I, I just have to like keep I, I have what to keep you? my hands down. It's not on Zoom because I have nothing activated on Zoom. I think it's a I think it's an Apple thing. Um I hope it doesn't happen to you. Uh, uh, but look, here's my core hiring philosophy because because I have a new one now. Uh it's references. Uh and even better if it's the managers or the colleagues that they don't give you. Uh, it's references. Top references. That's how you're always gonna get it. A really good answer on somebody now have you gone through a process where you really love somebody and then you got a reference you're like uh, i'm not sure and you had to pull back and how did you handle that yes um because from the candidate's and, perspective it's disconcerting because they're thinking everything's going great and then all of a sudden it's like he's ghosting me he's going cold on me right they feel like they're 17 years old again and they're not getting invited to the dance so what do you say what do you do um I had that happen recently and uh, I really, I, I, I tried to validate the conversation with the uh, candidate to figure out, you know, because there's, you know, there's three sides to every story, um, synthesized it and decided not to go with the candidate. And um, look, so there's, there's a, there's a cost. So 
there's like an opportunity cost. If, if I don't hire this person and this is the right person, there's like this, there's like a real cost there. Uh, but there's a very painful, tangible, uh, dangerous cost of hiring the wrong person. Um, and uh, uh, I'd rather not take the risk um, if, if, I've, if I've measured it a bit. So, I mean, you're absolutely preaching to the choir on that. There's a total bottom line impact. There's a quality of life impact. And it's not just for you and your company. It's also for them. When you bring somebody in who's the wrong fit, you're, they're missing on the opportunity to find their right fit. And it's, a, it's, it's an, maybe even more significant cost for them because if they're back out looking for another job soon, who knows what they've got going on at home and how much more impactful that can be. So totally yeah. agree with you. It's best just to, when you come to that point, sometimes it's tough, but you're making the right long-term decision for both parties. Do you interviews, any interviews and memorable interviews, anything that, what makes an inter interview memorable for you? Is it a way you feel? Is it, you know, having it a lunch rather than in an office setting? Like what, what, are, what are memorable interviews to you? You know, looking back, it's, it's not the interview that's memorable in a, in a vacuum. It's always what the first days and weeks look like against the backdrop of the interview. Ooh, so and how that validates or devalidates what you heard in the interview is what I'm hearing. Yeah, so I don't know if this is a question you're going to ask, but I'm just going to say it. Um, so I remember, I, 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 so I, so I just want to be careful about how I, how I word it. But I remember having a candidate that there was one red flag. There was one red flag that I never, um, I never negotiate on. Um, and this candidate had that red flag. However, they had the most amazing references ever and interviewed with like everybody, my mentors, advisors, everybody. And, um, And I was like, you know what? This person's so good. Gotta do it. And the first day on the job, it was like, oh, shit. This was a bad choice. And um, just, just a totally different human than the one everybody had been interviewing. And um, this is like, this is... This is actually like like one of those moments I look back on anytime I'm like willing to compromise on something with a new hire. I'm just like, you know, but, uh, I can't run the risk. Also, it depends how senior the person is, right? So the more senior the person, the larger the risk for the organization and, and, and that person, the more junior the person, uh, you know, the, the more room there might be to coach or, you know, whatever. But culture is a very uh, uh culture is a really important thing to try to measure for and if there's like a cultural misalignment it's it's generally not worth the time like i'm i'm not sure i heard anything you said after the red flag cuz i've just been trying to figure out what is he not willing to say that you know this is the mystery of this is just is so enticing is somebody going to know if you say it or is it something you don't want to give away for interviews or um yeah so look so something that i uh just I kind of automatically disqualify is if somebody has had uh, a lot of jobs uh, for like a Short year, six months, a year and yeah, a half. I, I want to talk about that because I think that is a very <laughs> common thing. And, and, and 
so here's the thing. I, I find, and I've said this before, I find the resume to be archaic and disqualifying and not really lead to meritocratic hiring because we all have our preconceived biases um, when we look at certain things. Now, I will say this, okay? A lot of people are looking for heuristics and educated guesses when you're making a big decision on somebody that you're only getting a couple hours to, to so you have to look into things, right? For example, I, and I tell people this all the time when we're coaching them, if you show up five minutes late to an interview, it doesn't matter if you've been on time for everything else you've ever done in your life, they have no choice but to think, eh, this person probably shows up late interview. If you cuss in the interview, okay, you might be you know, a nun the rest of the time, but if you cuss, they're gonna be like, eh, this person's got a little bit of a blue streak. I'm not sure about them. You have no choice but to extrapolate those things. So I absolutely agree with you in that looking at that and seeing a lot of jobs in a short amount of time is absolutely something that needs to be addressed. Where I would coach and guide people is don't necessarily automatically disqualify them because that's where it happens a lot. It's like I look at the resume. I see it. No, no, no. Get them out of here. It sounds like you went through the interview process. I want to give a person the opportunity to explain what happened. Now, very rarely do I get an answer if they've had three jobs in four years that makes me feel warm inside. Okay. But there have been times where I'm like, hey, it was 2008, 2009, 2010. Here's what happened. My mom got sick. This happened. And then I've been in this job for the last six years and grown. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, so everybody's got a story, everybody, and I just want to hear what's your story and explain why. If you make me feel good and warm inside after that, okay, we can keep talking. If it kind of sounds like BS or it sounds like it was everybody else's fault, you're probably reaffirming what I thought when I made that educated guess. You with me? So, yeah, so two comments. Uh, one, you asked my system, so it references, but more than that, it's always uh, uh, referrals. So if it's somebody in the company that's a culture fit, recommend somebody else that they say is a culture fit. That always that always that works really well. Always pays off. Uh, yep. So your I agree with your comment hundred percent. And the, the 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 one place where I, you know, where I think it where I think there's a challenge is if you're in a small organization, um, and you have you don't have a, a professional uh, a recruiting firm. You've got uh you know one person on HR or something like that, and you get three hundred resumes. You need a heuristic uh, to narrow it down. So for me. It's the perfect heuristic in that context. If you're resource constrained, you've got way too many resumes. How do you how do you find like the best you know twenty or thirty people uh, instead of you know the best hundred or two hundred? Now you'll absolutely lose star candidates because I agree with what you said one hundred percent. Especially in the last four years with uh, COVID, interest rates, like the world was crazy, so companies went out of business. Like there's, I agree with you a thousand percent, and I think that in a bootstrapped org that's small um, and you're resource constrained, you need some basic heuristics. And that's, I think that's like our go-to. I love where your head's at with that. If only there was a software that existed that could make it. Jackie, hit the fireworks. Am I getting fireworks? No, no fireworks for me. Okay. I'm totally with you. I do believe technology can fix some of those problems. I agree. I really, really appreciate the point though. Let me ask you this. Do you have a favorite question? A favorite question that you love to ask in interviews? Um. I ask, what are you reading? Ooh. I, so what happens yeah, if somebody so, says they don't read very much? Because I've gotten that a couple of times and I don't know if I'm just old school and I love to read and more people are into like, you know, scrolling Twitter or whatever it may be. But what happens if they say they don't read very much? Is that an immediate knockout for you? It depends how senior the position is. And then it's a follow up of, all right, what, you know, tell me what kind of stuff you consume. Um, if it's like nah, nothing, I like to listen to music. Uh, that probably doesn't work for somebody senior in our organization who needs to, who like, who needs to embody like one of our values is curiosity. And whether it's, you know, I like to, you know, I need something, right. Is it, is it a Lex Friedman podcast? Is it, 
Is it a Tim Ferriss podcast? Do you like to read biographies? Do you have a mentor? Um, what are you doing uh, to educate yourself, to stimulate your mind? And are you interested in that? Like, are you trying to, uh, to level up as a person? Um, because the only way you're going to level up our organization um, is, is if you're leveling up on the inside also. Okay, I got to ask him because you're very well read. You and I both love to read. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But have you ever asked somebody that? And then they listed a book and then you did a follow-up and then you realized that maybe they didn't read the book or maybe, or have you ever gotten an answer there that you didn't like, or is there anything that stood out? No. Okay, good. At least they're being high integrity. At least you're, at least you're filtering for integrity when you're interviewing. I love that. Um, I'm going to make up a bunch of books. I pretended I read to you <laughs> like these ones back here. So don't ask me any follow-up when we get to that part. Okay. Um, all right. All right let's, let's move on. I appreciate that. I want to know a little bit more about work right now. So tell me this. What's something you're working on right now that you're juiced about, you're excited about? What's something that's going on that just gets you going in the morning? We just started licensing out our generative AI uh, app, like applications and versions of our generative AI to institutions um, and commercial real estate lending enterprises. Uh, and I am so excited about that, about us being part of the AI transformation inside uh, what is traditionally uh, the slowest, most archaic, uh, most inertia filled industry in the world um, with like very, very clear value props, uh, very, very high ROI. And um, I love the idea of, of, of migrating uh, our top line more and more towards uh, software and subscriptions. Uh, and being able to add such significant value along the way. So I'm just fired up about um, the usefulness and productivity of generative AI in very, very targeted applications and transforming a, uh, a, a you know, a pretty uh, slow to change industry. I love that. I find it very interesting that we were talking earlier about the dangers of AI, but now we're on, hey, there's some powerful things happening here. I it's love amazing. That. You know what? The best thing is that it's going to impact and disrupt industries that are overly bureaucratic, overly administrative, overly resourced, and streamline and make them more optimal. Um, government is maybe something that should be looking into generative AI as soon as possible. There's the fireworks again. I love this. Uh, I can't wait for break out this. We absolutely have to have breakout videos with fireworks. Okay, I'm going to ask you about a LinkedIn. Yeah, we already talked a little bit about the IPO and the, uh, the 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 Nasdaq. So I'm going to ask a different one. Three highest impact daily exercises. You remember? Whoa, what you said? that's an old post. That's an you, old. You remember post. what you said here? No, but let me. Can I guess? Yeah. Are is it physical exercises or? Uh... There's no. There's no. This ain't trivia. I'm not helping you. You got to name all three. Come on. So reading, um, if it one, okay, um, it's an exercise. How Think old is this big post? Biceps you got? Well, it's pull-ups, but how old is it's this post? One year. Shit. All right, look. So physically, it's pull-ups, uh, for sure. Um, intellectually, pull what's the last one? I want it to be writing. It's kindness. Oh, I'm so good. How sweet. I'm well, do you remember best. how you were feeling in this moment? Obviously, very grateful and uh, flexing on the buys too. Like, how how are you feeling when you wrote this? Why did you write this? Okay, how was I feeling when I wrote it? 
Um, I guess I guess I'd uh, recently been the recipient of you know some kindness or 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 or, or perhaps uh, a bit on the other side and felt really good. And I thought about kindness as an exercise, and then I thought about uh, but I but I I'm, I mean I'm full of shit right now. I don't actually recall. Um, and then if it's why did I write this? I have these moments where I'm like, people follow me. Should I like should I share something um, that's meaningful to me? And uh, nine out of 10 times I'm embarrassed and don't do it. Uh, but I guess you identified the moment where I was embarrassed and I did it. And then you, you, you did this. So thank you. This is where I would usually make a joke where I'd say something along the lines of, like, I know whenever anybody does something kind for me, my first thought is to go to LinkedIn and make sure I post about it. But I literally post on LinkedIn so much that people will mute me. So I actually can't make that joke at all. I actually am like, like have lunch and I post about how it made me reflect on life. So I'm not the one. I love that. I love it. I appreciate it. I think it's a great post. All right. Here's a question everyone's been waiting for. What are we reading right now? What's some oh. good books? What are your favorite books? What do you What do you recommend? Okay. Um, well, I recommend. No, not rec. Here's what works for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's important for me to have a lot of genres. Okay. Uh, so. Uh, okay. Well, for science fiction, uh, I I recommend Dune as a starting mm -hmm. point. Um, for historical fiction, um, I recommend. Shogun as a starting point uh, about feudal Japan. And then if you want to read that book, I'd follow up with like Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast and, and, and hone in on uh, uh, on the war in the Pacific as an interesting follow up. Though Tycho is a good follow up to that. I think uh, I think the big leap was a was the biggest, most significant personal development book for me. What was it called? Um, the big what? The big leap by Gay Hendricks. What is it? Uh, what does it entail? What, what, what is the book about? Uh, so, so it has a few interesting frameworks. One of them was about, uh, kind of self-sabotage and the subconscious things that we do to self-sabotage ourselves. He calls it upper limiting behaviors. Also about the different zones we operate in, uh, that we have this zone of, uh, incompetence, competence, excellence, and genius. Um, and, and a lot about how to be in your genius and, and things like that. Um, I think, I think as a work of fiction, uh, the old man in the sea is as good as it gets. I think uh, I think Papillon is my favorite autobiography. I think uh, I think there's a lot of good business books out there, even though they get a lot of like people people give them a lot of shit. I'll give it to Jim Collins, Good to Great, just for introducing things like Level Five Leadership, the, the Flywheel, and stuff that. like that. I actually reread it's that last month off of a recommendation. I read it three times now, and then you know what's funny is, great books are great books. The man is it like when it finds you in the right moment of your life kind of like a spouse or a partner right and like i read from good to great before i started the company and then i read it very early on and i was like this is a good book a lot of good principles here. i really like it and then i read it most recently as i'm going through that actual time in my company and it really was just a different experience reading the exact same words over again but just being at a different point in my life and how i took it in and how I reflected on it. And I'm somebody that writes in my books and things like that. And I realized the first couple of times I had read it, I had not really written many notes. And then this time I was, I was all over the place. So just an interesting comment on that book. I love that book. I think that I could, you know, I think people are willing to rewatch a TV show or a movie. Why aren't you willing to, to reread a book? And I, uh, I'm 
far more inclined to reread a favorite book of mine for the fourth, fifth, or sixth time um, than I am to, to start something new. I'll, I'll tell you a book hack that I have, um, which helped me get to get from like a few books a year to 50 or 60 books a year. And now to like, not like now to unknown because I've got, you know, some dozens of, of books open at any given time, like 30 or 40 or more. Um, I was listening to, I was either listening to Naval Ravikant or, uh, or maybe I was reading the Almanac of Naval Ravikant, which, which uh, I think maybe Eric Jorgensen wrote, but I might be making that up. And he, uh, and he was talking about all the books he was reading, but he was like, I have no, um, like, I don't need to finish a book. Like mm -hmm. I could start it, skip through, not finish. This changed my life. So as a, yes. as a Jew, as a Jew, I'm like, there's guilt, right? Like I'm, I feel guilty about everything. So I would feel guilty uh, to, to, to not finish a book. So I would either force myself to finish it or I would just stop reading uh, until like I was ready to go back and finish it. Now I, no exaggeration, hundred, 200 books that are anywhere from 1% to 90% done. And I don't care at all. Uh, I, I, I read to read, um, as a, Let me as come on just, that. there's a couple of different things. Ryan holiday actually says this a lot. And I, it's something I started doing. I love him. Yeah, I do too. He goes, the enemy is great book. Uh, obstacles, the way another great book. Obstacle um, is the way. Great book. Um, I, He's been saying this for a while. I've done this for a while though, too, because what I found myself doing was you started something. This is a commitment. You got to follow through with it. But you know what the funny thing about books are is that they repeat the same theme, especially the type of books I read over and over and over again. Right. And so it's like, I got the message. I picked it up. And so actually, and, and, and you're going to disagree with me on this and that's fine. I don't read, <laughs> uh, I don't read fiction. Um, I actually don't reread a lot of books. I never rewatch TV shows or movies. And here's why. I have, and this is not the right way. This is just silly things in my head. I'm a big growth mindset person. I want to keep growing. I want to keep learning. And I, I feel like the half-life of what I learned the second time, third time is a diminishing return on the time I expend, where I'd rather find out about something new. Good to great is an exception there. Um, but I, I'll I, I almost never rewatch movies. I, I saw it once. I don't need to say it a second time. Almost never rewatch TV shows. Books from time to time, if I really need to re-understand something or I'm in a different time in my life. But for me, I want to read nonfiction biography books that I uh, I'm consuming it and I'm learning and I'm getting better from it. I feel it in me. But to your point, I got to a point where I would read half a book and I didn't feel bad. I'd move it to the side. I want to go back and I want to look at some of the books I've got here. These are some, these are like one twentieth of what I have. Um, I'll tell you one that I read recently. That's going to go back to our first topic. Abundance. Have you read that? It's about technology. It's optimism. You need to read it's it. It's on my Good. list. How to be a I'm not I'm not pessimistic about technology. I'm just concerned. I got you. what book? I'm gonna I'm gonna pick three right here. I just picked three and I'm gonna recommend them for our people here. How to be a stoic, stoic philosophy. Your boy was into this before it was a trend. Okay. I love stoic philosophy. I believe in it. This is a great book by Massimo Delucci. The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, big Simon Sinek man. Uh always talking about we're playing infinite games rather than finite games. It's not about winning or losing. It's about the game itself. And then Grit by Angela Duckworth. Obviously, very good book. Study on persistence and perseverance and the things that make us who we are. So if anybody was looking for some good book advice, I think we just listed 10 books there that potentially could change your life. I got one last question before you, before you finish. What's one bit of advice 
career advice or otherwise, that you would give your 20-year-old self or maybe somebody early in your career listening to this that you didn't know then but that you know now? Learn from others. Learn from others. Learn from the mistakes of others. You don't have to make the mistakes yourself. I love that. My mom used to say that. She, she used to tell me, uh, smart people learn from their own mistakes. Geniuses learn from the mistakes of the people around them. I always remember that. Good and bad. Uh, Blake, you are by far one of the smartest people I know. Definitely one of the most well-read. And I always enjoy our conversations. I know this is not the last of them. We've got many to come. But I really appreciate you coming on the pod. I had a great time. This is awesome. <laughs> Where are the fireworks? All right, man. See you later. Later, man. Later, buddy.